I'm Shona Thompson filling in today on the Bill Kelly podcast. We'll take a look at small, modular nuclear reactors to see if they're the way of the future and the way to meet some green energy targets and find out if there's any pitfalls. The Bank of Canada has set a new rate, but the hikes have raised the ire of many. We'll find out why. And Premier Doug Ford is trying something new to get out of appearing at the Emergencies Act inquiry, a judicial review to quash the summons. We'll ask a professor of criminology why Ford is working so hard not to offer information to an inquiry that's really just finding facts. The Bill Kelly podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ontario Power Generation is developing the project next to the Darlington Nuclear Generating Station. OPG's president and CEO Ken Hartwick says that he hopes it won't be the only one. And I think as we uh, we move forward on the first uh, reactor, the first SMR, uh, we'll design the site to probably build four at the site. Uh, but we'll only start the second one when we know we're, we are successful on the first one. To explore this idea further, we are tapping on Dr. Chris Kiefer, who's joining us from Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it because, you know, until yesterday when this was announced, I actually hadn't heard of a grid-scale small modular reactor. I know you have. Uh, so maybe you can tell us exactly what that is. For sure. I mean, there's no great mystery here. This is just the smaller version of a very well-established reactor technology. It is new for Canada. I want to be clear about that because we have used our own national design called the Candu reactor. I don't want to get too into the weeds here, but that is a heavy water reactor, a really remarkable piece of technology, which has contributed to Ontario's deeply decarbonized grid powered our coal phase out and produces medical isotopes that sterilize 40% of the world's single-use medical devices. But this technology, it's not new or untested. This is a boiling water reactor. They're used all over the world. It's just a smaller version. Um, And so, you know, this is a historic announcement because we now have a very pro-nuclear provincial government and a federal government that's been very conflicted on its approach to nuclear, finally coming around, seeing the light on this vital decarbonization technology and, you know, putting its money where its mouth is. Um, Well, uh, Germany has had to switch its plans. I mean, it was getting out of nuclear generation, um, but because of the conflict in uh, in Ukraine with Russia and uh, problems with uh, natural gas pipelines, um, Germany has had to rethink all of its plans on nuclear generation. I really call Germany the canary in the coal mine, and I use the word coal mine deliberately. Even before the Russian invasion, Germany was depending on coal for the majority of its electricity supply. That's in 2021. Okay, I want to be crystal clear about this. And that's despite a 550 billion euro investment in a wind and solar dominated energy transition. The simple fact is that the Germans were not able to phase coal off their grid. Ontario did. We use nuclear energy. In Germany, they've done the opposite. They've shut down an enormous nuclear fleet. It used to provide 30% of their energy. And yes, because Russia has cut them off now, um, they're actually turning back towards coal. Just this last week, we heard an announcement that they're firing up five new lignite coal plants. And I mean, all coal is terrible for the environment and terrible for air quality, but lignite is the worst kind of coal you can imagine. Um, So Germany is not the uh, example to follow here. And I'm very glad that our government um, has, has changed course. 
I'll remind listeners that our natural resource minister, Minister Wilkinson, actually defended the Germans' decision to shut down the remaining nuclear plants, um, saying that these nuclear plants don't actually displace gas. I mean, that was an outright falsehood. Um, but he was contradicted several weeks later by Greta Thunberg, the world's most famous climate activist, who said, yes, Germany is moving away from nuclear into coal, and that is something that should be opposed. So, you know, the world is really turned upside down. Um, you know, even before this Russian invasion, we were heading into an energy crisis. And when you have an energy crisis, when you have a shortage of fossil fuels, if you actually need to replace fossil fuels, the tool that works better than any other is nuclear energy. And so it's it's an exciting time, you know, as an activist who's sort of chosen this as, as their field um, to be at the forefront of this. Um, I understand that these small uh, reactors can be built fairly quickly. Again, the history of nuclear energy is that we started with small reactors. The first CANDU design at Douglas Point um, had a similar power output as this plant that's being designed at Darlington. So what's old is new again. There's nothing fancy about this. Again, Russia has built several small modular reactors. China has built similarly sized small reactors. Um, this is the first small reactor build in the West. You know, I do have some mixed feelings about this because we have an incredible Canadian content in our CANDU nuclear reactor technology. Um, this is a reactor that is operating better than ever, that has been updated over decades and decades um, and is setting operational records. It works great. Um, in my opinion, we need to not let CANDU go the way of the Avro Arrow. We should be very proud of this technology, as I mentioned, proven track record on deep decarbonization and this amazing spinoff of medical isotopes. Um, but we have elected to pursue, you know, maybe building small as a way that we can build more quickly because it's a smaller plant, right? I'm very heartened by the fact that Todd Smith uh, announced the life extension and probable refurbishment of Pickering. Again, we were about to lose 3,000 megawatts of carbon-free electricity at Pickering. And this SMR only adds 300 megawatts. So that would have been one step forward for 10 steps back. I think SMRs have important applications, particularly in our smaller provinces. And there's, there's interest from international buyers. Um, but I am a little bit, you know, my preoccupation is not, oh, this is untested technology. That's absolutely not true. It is untested economics. We know economies of scale work. There's some ideas that, you know, because these are smaller, we may be able to build more parts of them in a factory, and that may lead to an accelerated construction schedules and easier financing. Um, that is the untested part. But I think the key lesson here that we have to draw is that Canada is a tier one nuclear nation. We've done an amazing job with our nuclear fleet. Our refurbishments of our candy reactors are going uh, under budget and ahead of schedule, um, and that we are very well equipped from running those refurbishments, Canada's largest infrastructure project, to deploy more new large CANDU, which we need. You know, we need to double or triple our grid. That's going to take a lot of new nuclear reactors in order to accomplish that. One of the things that I was thinking would be um, a potential application for a small modular reactor would be in remote areas where other forms of power generation may not be immediately available or getting the power there would require a lot of infrastructure to be built in order to take, say, uh, hydroelectricity and put it to the far north. Yeah, I mean, this is not a hypothetical situation. None of it spent $250 million. That's a quarter billion dollars on diesel fuel and heating oil uh, several years ago. I don't have the exact facts for this year. Prices have gone up. Fossil fuels, if you haven't noticed, have gotten a lot more expensive. So the North is critically dependent 
on fossil fuels. And really those communities, you know, these used to be subsistence hunter gatherer, uh, mobile communities, these larger permanent settlements um, do not work without a energy dense form of reliable energy. And so there is the possibility of replacing that very expensive fossil fuel infrastructure with nuclear in some of those communities. Obviously, that's going to be completely contingent upon local acceptance, and that's an uphill battle. There's many reasons why Inuit and Indigenous people might be skeptical of large industrial projects coming to their communities. Um, but again, there's there's a plan to cut subsidies for all fossil fuels, right? And that is going to be felt the most dearest and nearest in the far north, where again, Towns like Iqaluit are completely dependent on heating oil and diesel for both their heating and electricity needs. So they need a low carbon substitute, but something that is ultra reliable because, you know, these are, I don't need to say, that's almost like living on the moon. These are extreme weather environments, even without climate change, um, and people will die without reliable energy. So, you know, there's there's a lot of work to be done. We are pursuing micro-modular reactors. There's a design that's five megawatts that will be coming online in Chalk River in 2026. I think that has great applications for the far north. But in terms of our race to deep decarbonization, you know, it's not the responsible responsibility for Inuit and Indigenous people who've contributed almost nothing to climate change to bear that responsibility. We in the South, in these large economies that use massive amounts of power, are where this needs to start. And we're going to need large nuclear in order to, to do that, to shift away from, from further gas burning and electrify everything in our society. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML in Hamilton and 980 CFPL in London. I'm Shona Thompson sitting in for Bill. We're speaking with Dr. Chris Kiefer of Canadians for Nuclear Energy about grid-scale modular reactors, small modular reactors, uh, one of which is going to be coming online near the Darlington Nuclear Generating Station. Uh, They have just provided the funding for it to be built as, I guess, a bit of an experiment to see uh, how it's going to go. Um, They're starting with one. Plans are for at least four in that location. One of the other things I was thinking of, Chris, um, back in 2003, when there was that big blackout, uh, I was living in Grimsby in Niagara region, and Grimsby did not lose power during that blackout because that municipality had its own hydro utility. And I'm wondering if there is a potential here for a grid scale small modular reactor, which I think would power, what, about 300,000 homes? Is that correct? Listen, I mean, grid resiliency is absolutely vital and something that we've learned to completely take for granted. You have to look no further than places like California, which have, again, invested heavily in wind and solar as their energy transition choice and have ended up with very high electricity prices, but more importantly, an unstable electrical grid. California is going to be banning new internal combustion engine vehicles in 2035. Four days after they made that announcement, they said, hey, everyone with a battery electric vehicle, please don't charge your car this weekend because the grid is under extreme stress. So with this move towards electrification, towards electrify everything, we need ultra reliable sources of electricity and we need to avoid blackouts, particularly if we don't have a fossil fuel backup infrastructure. You know, my son spent five weeks in an incubator. He was born seven weeks prematurely. We take it for granted that the power will always be on there. But I mean, this is a matter that is personal for me as a father and as a physician who works in a institution, a hospital that has critical, reliable power needs. And so as we move towards, you know, an energy transition, which is vital for combating climate change, we need to make sure that we do it in an intelligent and smart way. And again, it is excellent, excellent news to see the federal government, which has had very contradictory policies towards nuclear energy, 
on the one hand, lumping it alongside tobacco, smoking, gambling, and firearms in its green bond framework, um, and on the other, making it eligible for this funding. That happened just in April of this year, and partially as a, as a response to some of the advocacy that my organization did in Ottawa. Um, and now, again, I'm, I'm so grateful and so happy to see that the Canada Infrastructure Bank is making this $1 billion investment. $1 billion may sound like a lot to your listeners, but I want to remind them that every year, Ontario is spending $3.1 billion a year to pay subsidies for the wind and solar contracts under the Green Energy Act. That, that program is going to cost us $60 billion over the 30-year lifespan of those assets. And they do have a 30-year lifespan. Unlike a nuclear plant, the, life, the lifespan of a wind farm is 20 years. Uh, a solar farm may get 30 years, but then they're done. Whereas our Candu fleet is going 60 to 80 years, and this small modular reactor has an 80-year lifespan. So we need to be smart as we face you know, challenging economic times, as we face inflation. Um, we have to make the right technological choices that will deliver us both evidence-based deep decarbonization, um, as well as uh, the economic stimulus that we need and the reliable electricity that we all depend upon. Uh, one of the downsides that I read about was uh, how much nuclear waste these smaller plants can produce. So nuclear waste is a, a very misunderstood phenomenon by the lay public. Um, the way it's discussed, you'd think it's just everywhere and it's hurting people, right? The total volume of nuclear waste that Canada has produced over the 60 years of its nuclear program with more than 20 operational large reactors would fit in one hockey rink stacked one telephone pole high. Like, that's remarkable. How is that? Well, it's because uranium as a fuel is a million times more energy dense than coal. So, for instance, the Bruce Nuclear Power Station, which is the world's largest operating nuclear station, goes through a volume of uranium that's similar to one barrel of oil every day. So I've visited some of this, the facilities where these, where these uh, fuel elements are stored. It's benign. It's like an immaculately kept Costco warehouse with um, steel and concrete uh, containers that, that contain the fuel from decades and decades and decades of power generation. So first off, you know, we produce very little. You know, coming out of the reactor, nuclear waste is incredibly dangerous, unshielded. But paradoxically, in modern society, we make dangerous things safe. Just think about flying in an airplane. How crazy is it to fly across the Atlantic 900 kilometers an hour at 30,000 feet in an airplane that needs meticulous maintenance of 10,000 mission-critical moving parts? And we have 4.5 billion passenger flights a year, and there's only about 200 deaths from aviation every year. Well, in the entire history of civilian nuclear waste, there's not been a single death associated with storing nuclear waste. So tiny volumes, a perfect track record, and we do have excellent long-term solutions like de deep geologic uh, disposal or recycling in new generation nuclear reactors. Uh, one of the things, and, and frankly, it struck me a bit as fear-mongering, uh, but one of the things that I read uh, was from the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, they were saying that some types of the waste could be exploited. So, I mean, this is a, a commonly leveraged fear around nuclear energy. Um, the reality is, you know, I think when they say exploited, they're talking probably about, you know, terrorism or diversion towards making nuclear weapons. I mean, this is this is a common fear that's brought up, the conflation of nuclear weapons with nuclear energy. The reality is, is that the nuclear waste is incredibly carefully monitored. There's cameras from Austria monitoring it at all times. These are in high uh, security facilities. You know, I work in healthcare. 
Um, most of the infractions that the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission goes after are healthcare related. Because listen, we manage a lot of radioactive elements, both in sterilization of medical instruments, um, as well as in cancer therapeutics. So, you know, if a terrorist is going wanting to go after something, I'm not going to tell them where to go instead of a nuclear plant, but you can sort of infer there. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of sort of fear, uncertainty and doubt that is weaponized against nuclear energy. Unfortunately, that's coming from environmentalists who really should know better. Because again, nuclear has an incredible track record, especially right here in Ontario. We had North America's greatest greenhouse gas reduction powered by nuclear energy. 90% of the power we needed to get rid of coal, which used to be 25% of our grid, came from nuclear. You know, we went from 54 smog days a year in Toronto, we used to be called the big smoke, to zero because of nuclear energy. The, the Ontario Medical Association estimates 600 lives a year were saved as a result of shutting down coal in Ontario. So, I mean, I think I think there needs to be a real reevaluation. I think there's no greater misperception and gap between experts and, and general public of any field, really, other than nuclear energy. And so, I mean, that's why I'm a passionate communicator on this topic. I'm a full-time emergency physician. My only income comes from OHIP. Um, so I just want to make that abundantly clear because it might be strange to be listening to a doctor passionately advocating for nuclear energy. Well, we only have so many options in order to hit some of the green targets that uh, have been set out that we need to hit in, in order to reduce the impacts of climate change. And I think people in Nova Scotia are certainly experiencing what that is like if we don't move on this. No, absolutely. And we do have a number of options ahead of us. Um, and we need to be very vigorous in, 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 anal in analyzing the evidence, again, of what has worked and what has not. The federal government has held up the supposed Canada-German Hydrogen Alliance as an example of how we're going to both assist our allies and do so in a low-carbon fashion. But, you know, I've looked very carefully at this and analyzed this with experts. It involves building a wind fleet the size of every wind turbine already existing in Canada, hooking them up to electrolyzers, making hydrogen, turning it into ammonia, shipping it across the ocean, and burning it in coal plants in Germany. I mean, if it took me a while to explain that process to you, and that seems complicated, it's because it is. And it's not energy efficient. You waste about 90% of the energy turning a Canadian electron from a wind turbine into an electron on the German grid. So there's a lot of energy illiteracy amongst our political class, and it's leading to some very poor decisions. So again, I'm very grateful that a decisive action was taken by the federal government, which has been entertaining fantasies like a Canada-German hydrogen alliance. They've taken a concrete step, they've followed the evidence, and they're doing something that's very sensible. You know, again, $1 billion seems like a lot of money. We will have spent $60 billion on a wind and solar strategy in Ontario, which has borne very little um, in terms of its contribution to decarbonization in Ontario. Um, so I think we're moving towards energy reality and into making some sensible choices, um, which will be a benefit to our clean air, to our climate and, and to our economy. Chris, it's always interesting speaking with you. Shona, thanks for having me. Dr. Chris Kiefer is with the Canadians for Nuclear Energy. We've been talking about uh, the small modular reactor. About a billion dollars has been set aside by the Canadian Infrastructure Bank provided for its creation. Uh, it is set to start producing energy in 2028, and uh, they are hoping to have another three join it very soon. We'll see what happens uh, as this plays out. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Bank of Canada has just announced its latest hike in the bank rate. It is up by a half a percentage point, bringing it to 3.75%. Uh, and that is the sixth increase so far this year. The moves by the bank to hike the rate as a way to control inflation. Well, it's drawn some criticism of the central bank itself. Here to give us some insight on this and uh, what this latest rate hike means is Moshe Lander, who's a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Moshe, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Hi, Shana. Um, so maybe we should start with the bank rate that was just said. It's up by a half a point. Uh, some people thought it might be going up as much as three quarters of a point, right to 4%. That didn't happen. What do you think uh, this move means? Well, I was one of the people expecting three quarters of a percentage point. So there's my credibility gone. Um <laughs> I, well, I, I won't hold that, that against you. <laughs> I don't think anybody should hold it against me for, <laughs> for being wrong in this case. It's it's in our favor that it's only half a percentage point. I, I think that the Bank of Canada then is, is saying that, you know, inflation continues to remain a problem. The inflation numbers that came out last week were only 6.9%. Uh, and uh, there was a hope that it would have come down a little bit more. And I, I think that the Bank of Canada had no choice but to increase interest rates by not going to 75 basis points. Maybe what they're saying here is that uh, the the real risks of a recession are are there, and uh, too much too soon might be enough to tip the economy over the edge. And so they might want to do it a little more modestly uh, in in the next couple of meetings instead of in one big shot today. Yeah, uh, maybe we should start this conversation with a little bit of background about the Bank of Canada and what it does. Maybe people don't really understand that. So the Bank of Canada is uh, independent of the government, and so its its uh, head is called the governor, and they are uh, appointed by the government, but at that point, they're cut loose. And what they're responsible for is conducting monetary policy in this country, which is setting interest rates, controlling the amount of money in circulation. Uh, they have some influence, if they want, over the exchange rate, and they're big mandate is to make sure that that inflation rate in Canada is kept between one and three percent. Which hasn't been happening anywhere in the world. No. And so over a period of about 30 years from, say, the beginning of the Chrétien government until COVID, uh, the Bank of Canada, like most central banks around the world, were wildly successful at taming inflation. And so anybody of a certain age will remember that the 1970s, 1980s were characterized by the double-digit inflation that we're all worried about now post-COVID. When COVID hit, the, the biggest issue was that it created these massive disruptions to these very long supply chains that had been built up over decades of globalization. And so when those supply chains got cut, the ability to get goods onto shelves was massively disrupted. And so what happens then is that when goods can't make it to shelves, prices rise quickly. And that's the inflation that we've been seeing. The Bank of Canada is well equipped to deal with inflation when it comes from consumers being a little too spend happy. But they're not well equipped for dealing with inflation when it's coming from these supply chain issues. And that's why they're having such a hard time taming it, despite six interest rate increases in the last nine months. Yeah, there's been a lot of criticism. Uh, I mean, I first heard it from Pierre Poiliev when he was uh, running for the leadership of the Conservative Party. He now is the leader of that party. Uh, But I've also heard criticism from people like NDP's Jagmeet Singh. Um, They're not too happy with the Bank of Canada and what's going on. But this policy is not different than what's going on, say, at the Fed in the United States or the Bank of England or in Germany. 
I mean, it's happening everywhere. That's exactly it. And it's because everybody in the world is dealing with the disrupted supply chains coming from COVID lockdowns. And, you know, we're in Canada, we're pretending that COVID is over. (laughs) Um, You know, there are other parts of the world that are still struggling with uh, varying degrees of lockdowns and disruptions coming from wave after wave of COVID. And so, you know, one of the benefits of globalization is that in creating those long supply chains, it's allowed uh, work to be shifted to the most productive parts of the world. And so the unit cost of production has been declining, which means we've been seeing those nice, stable prices for year after year. But when those supply chains get disrupted, we're seeing the bad side of globalization then. And so, you know, when left and right are both attacking the, the Bank of Canada, it, it doesn't improve their credibility, it doesn't improve their inflation fighting credentials. And in fact, it makes it harder because when they're saying that we're doing this to control inflation, if people disregard it and just believe that inflation is going to be higher, what's the solution? It's more interest rate hikes. And so, Uh, They're actually creating a vicious circle here that could really damage the economy uh, rather than just keeping their mouth shut and recognizing the, the economic reality. Well, uh, you know, one of the thoughts I had about all of this was um, Canada's inflation rate as compared to other members of the G7 really is not that bad. In September, it was at 6.9%, as you mentioned. Um, It's more dramatic in other parts of the G7. Yeah, and and Canada actually has some pretty good underlying fundamentals. I, I mean, if we do head for a recession, it's a terrible thing to say that we're in good shape. But it's it's kind of one of those weird sorts of analogies that you know somebody goes in for surgery at the hospital and you say, well, at least they were fit, right? They're going in for surgery, but the idea that they were at least in a state of health when they went in for that surgery is probably a good sign that they should be able to withstand the surgery, right? Same sort of idea here that if the Canadian economy is reasonably fit and we're heading in for some pretty damaging times. Uh, that being fit is a pretty good thing. And so you're right. If, if we have a lower inflation rate, a lower unemployment rate, if we have a, a stronger economy, if we've uh, done a pretty decent job of reestablishing some of those uh, supply chains that have been disrupted in the last few months, then yeah, if a recession comes, I don't think anybody's going to be happy about it. But we're going to be better able to withstand it than a lot of countries that are still dealing with a lot of these basic problems that we've at least solved or, or managed to kind of work around. Well, what I've been hearing is that uh, the Fed and the Bank of England will be setting their key interest rates next week. And and there are some uh, forecasts that that's going to be around 4.25% at least in those two areas. Yeah, and, and where that ends up having uh, an impact for Canada is... Uh, how that affects our exchange rate, right? So you can imagine that if the uh, US and the the British are increasing their interest rates very rapidly, uh, money would naturally flow into those countries because while it's a lot to borrow, it's also a lot of a return uh, if you're investing there. And so if the money is flowing out of Canada, but flowing into the US and into the UK, uh, that's going to put downward pressure on the Canadian dollar. Uh, we're always taught to think that a weak Canadian is a good thing. It helps our exporters, which is true, uh, but it's also bad for imports. Uh, it makes those imports more expensive uh, when you have that weak Canadian dollar. And so it could actually be then this sort of inflationary pressure that consumers start experiencing. Uh, the way to alleviate that pressure is when they go for a big hike, unless we have a compelling reason not to, we need to match them with that big hike to make sure that we're not importing inflation, so to speak, from those countries. 
We're speaking with Moshe Lander, who is a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University, not only about the bank rate hike that was just announced, and if you're just joining us, uh, they have decided to hike the rate by about a half a point to 3.75%. But we're also talking about some of the criticism of the central bank rate. And, and Moshe, the example that you were uh, talking about uh, just a moment ago with, you know, how intertwined a lot of these things are, it almost sounds like it's a little bit of, what, economic whack-a-mole? Because if you change something here, something else is going to pop up over there. To some extent, it's true. And and one of the ways then that if you want to deal with the whack-a-mole analogy, right, is that it requires some level of concerted effort on the parts of all of the central banks to not necessarily move in lockstep, but, you know, if you have enough kind of hands over the various holes, uh, you should be able to win the game, right? Um, and, And so... In the past, what you found is that these central banks are not acting in a vacuum. You know, it, it's not that they're having uh, private confidential talks that are are some sort of conspiratorial uh, exercise, but they are talking to each other. And I'm sure that the Bank of Canada was consulting with the Fed and with its other major trade partners and saying, what is it that you're seeing there? What is it that you anticipate that you're going to do? And based on that, that's a factor in formulating their policy move that we saw today. Uh, And so the half percentage point is based at least in part on the big hikes that are expected next week, but also what's the best fit for the Canadian economy at the same time. Yeah. Um, Some of the criticism uh, that's been leveled against the bank, um, I have to wonder if that's all politically based. I mean, Pierre Poiliev has been talking about doing away with the Bank of Canada. I'm not even sure that there's the power to do that. Uh, It is an arm's length agency of the government after all. I'm just wondering if that's just, you know, politicking because nobody's happy with six uh, bank rate hikes in a year. Yes, it's it's entirely political. There, there's no economic justification for what they're talking about uh, on left or right. Um, and so what they're saying is actually damaging from an economic standpoint. So I can understand why, you know, the NDP leader would want to make a comment about the Bank of Canada. Uh, lower income Canadians are, are suffering from uh, inflation, just like everybody else in Canada. Uh, but they're also suffering from these rapid increases in interest rates that's raising the cost of borrowing to very punitive levels. Leader of the Conservative Party would also be making the same argument then because his constituency are probably hiring Canadians who are now seeing that their cost of borrowing and uh, running business is becoming more expensive as well. And so it's an easy target because they're not political at the Bank of Canada, because they're independent, and because generally speaking, they're not going to go in front of an open mic and start talking about politics. They're just going to talk about economics. Uh, It's easy to criticize with no real consequence. And since people really don't understand what the Bank of Canada does anyway, uh, then it's an easy target for everybody to direct their ire. Uh, But like I said, from an economic standpoint, that type of thing and damaging their credibility just makes their job that much harder, which means the pain that we have to absorb is just that much more. It's very counterproductive. I'm so glad in the early part of this discussion, you mentioned what happened in the 70s and 80s, because there's a generation of people out there who only knew very low interest rates from the Bank of Canada, that things were kind of trucking along at an even keel for the most part uh, for the last uh, several years, maybe even the last couple of decades. And they don't remember things like wage and price controls, six and five, and and the way interest rates went in the 1980s. My father was a mortgage manager in the 1980s. (laughs) I remember very well what it was like. 
Yeah, and there were there were a lot of people, you know, that that lost their homes, and there were a lot of people that like really struggled to make ends meet. the The, the difference between now and then uh, is that Canada is a very different economy, uh, and it's structured very differently than it was in the 1980s. And so um, that that diversity is actually going to be our greatest strength here. Where uh, you know, in the 1980s, the the Canada of then was much more. Uh, local and much more isolated and much more disconnected from the world. Remember that in the 1980s, we weren't even a part of NAFTA, let alone uh, a much broader global economic community. So, you know, the ability to absorb shocks is much better when you're more open, uh, much in the same way that, uh, you know, a person is much more able to withstand being pushed if they're more flexible. And so that flexibility is actually going to serve us well here. But yeah, you're right. There's an entire generation that have no idea and think that 6.9% is the end of the world. Uh, and there's a generation we're going to say 6.9% was nothing. We were dealing with 20%. <laughs> and in you know mortgage rates that were in the 20s, um, it, it's bad, but it, perspective matters too. This is only high by recent standards. It, it's not high by uh, more conventional measures. Well, and if you could just sort of give us an assessment to wrap up this conversation, where is Canada standing in terms of where it is with not only the bank rate and and that situation, but inflation as compared to the rest of the G7? I have a feeling we're not doing too badly. We're not. We we have a a lower inflation rate. We have lower interest rates. We have a stronger economy in terms of economic growth, where the Americans are talking about how they're already in a recession. We continue to be debating whether we're going to enter into a recession. So, you know, we we have a lot of the, the things right. We came out of COVID with a lot more government debt than we started. But that level of government debt that we went into COVID was a lot lower, which means that we had a lot more room uh, before it became a problem. So, you know, the the economy is, relatively speaking, it's in good shape. And the fact is that if Canadians understand that the Bank of Canada is there to bring inflation down, come what may, uh, the damage that's done by these higher interest rates is going to be much less than if we stubbornly listen to uh, politicians trying to score political points and destabilize the economy. Moshe, thank you so much for your perspective on this. I think it's helped a lot. Anytime. Moshe Lander is a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. We've been talking not only about the latest setting by the Bank of Canada, and again, it has raised its rate by about a half a point. It's now at 3.75%, but we've been also talking about the criticism that has been leveled against the Bank of Canada and whether or not it's really justified. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I've been waiting to speak to our next guest all morning long, especially because of what just happened within the last hour or so at Queen's Park. We're going to be talking about this whole pushback by Premier Doug Ford and his then Solicitor General Sylvia Jones to the summons to appear at the Emergencies Act inquiry. And it's all gone to another level because now there's an application that's been made for a judicial review seeking to quash that summons. Well, the Premier was at Queen's Park this morning and was grilled about not appearing before the inquiry, and here is his full answer. This is a federal inquiry into the federal government's use of the Federal Emergencies Act. From day one, Mr. Speaker, for Ontario, this was a a policing matter. It was not a political matter. And the opposition knows, Mr. Speaker, politicians don't direct the police Top officials from the OPP that were running the operation in conjunction with the municipal police agencies and the RCMP are testifying at the committee. 
Again, Mr. Speaker, this is a federal inquiry into the federal government's decision to use the Federal Emergencies Act. Well, to help us clarify what's going on here, we've called on Michael Kempa, who's an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. And being an Ottawa resident, I'm sure he's very interested about what's going on here. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. So, uh, Dr. Kempa, it's all a federal issue. Well, yes, it's a federal inquiry that has so far heard from the city of Ottawa, the Ottawa Police Service, the Ontario Provincial Police. It will hear from Windsor government, other provinces, Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan. It will hear from every link in the chain of civil institutions that broke down that helps us understand why the federal government invoked its Emergencies Act. Obviously, the province of Ontario is one of the key links in that chain. In order to understand why the federal government did what it did, we need to know more about what the province tried to do and why it just wasn't quite enough to solve the problem, such that Doug Ford himself supported the federal government in invoking the Emergencies Act. He's got to step up and testify. Well, I'm trying to keep the scorecard clear here, because at first it was uh, parliamentary privilege. That was the reason why he wasn't going to appear. And they'd already sent documents. So really, that should cover it. Uh, And and now there is that um, uh, attempt by using uh, a judicial inquiry about the summons itself as to whether that's even valid. And now it seems to be, you know, it was everybody else. It wasn't really us. Okay. So let me avoid being a partisan hack here and say that politicians for 30 years have hidden behind the concept of operational independence of the police. Review after inquiry after review, going all the way back to the FLQ crisis in Quebec in the 1970s, has said politicians are involved at a broad strategic policy level in coordinating with police and security agencies obviously, to achieve the resolution of emergency situations. They cannot simply say, this is a police matter. It's got nothing to do with me. I delegate it all to everybody else. And it's I'm basically accountable for nothing. Obviously, if we have a massive set of protests across the country and the province of Ontario disputing vaccination policies and rules, which are mostly provincial matters, these protesters want to negotiate with government We send the police in to start facilitating negotiation. Who is on the other side of the negotiation? It is obviously the provincial and federal government. They are involved. It is a fallacy to say that policing and politics are completely separate. They do come together, especially in times of protest. But critically, they must come together in publicly accountable ways. For 30 years, we've hidden behind operational independence. Review after review says, not so fast, that's not the way it works. We will not allow ourselves to be fooled again by this argument being raised by the Premier. Frankly, he should know better because, as I say, report after report after report has come to this exact conclusion. Well, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, an application has been made for a judicial review seeking to quash that summons. And we found out that uh, Ontario's Attorney General says in this application that uh, irreparable harm will occur if Ford testifies. What does that mean? 
The argument for judicial review that Ford and Jones are raising is parliamentary privilege. Now, this is a very, very weak legal argument. Parliamentary privilege, we let legislative representatives off the hook for all kinds of time-consuming other duties so that they have enough time to properly execute their duties to the legislature. So, for example, we don't make them go on jury duty. They are can be immune from giving evidence in criminal trials if giving evidence would take so much time that it would prevent them from executing their duties in the legislature. In other words, parliamentary privilege exists to protect the ability of the parliamentarian to execute their duties, not to protect the parliamentarian, him or her or themselves. It doesn't just give them immunity saying, well, I'm a parliamentarian, it means I don't have to answer any questions. It is the opposite. So if there is no judge when this gets to a review that's going to say a single day away from the legislature to give evidence to a national inquiry looking into an emergency and the role of the province in attempting to remedy that problem somehow will prevent these two parliamentarians from executing their duties. Just for example, they missed question period yesterday seeking to avoid answering questions about why they cannot miss a single day in Parliament to go to this inquiry. It's, it's, it's almost a, a farce in that sense. So I don't believe it's a serious legal strategy. To me, based on that reading of what parliamentary privilege means, it's a delay tactic. They're hoping everybody changes the channel, moves on to the federal cabinet ministers and Justin Trudeau, who also aren't going to look so rosy on the uh, witness stand. Nobody has to this point. Nobody really has very much to fear on the basis that this is a clear systems failure. Uh, the way I was going to phrase it was that Ford was ducking questions about ducking questions from the Emergencies Act well, I mean, by not showing up. read like something from The Onion at a certain point. You know, Premier says, well, Premier avoids par- uh, le- the legislature in order to avoid questions about why he cannot possibly miss time in the legislature. I mean, it's an absurdity. Well, it brings up uh, or brings us to uh, a question that's come up a lot since all of this uh, pushback started, which is, what is he hiding? Well, in terms of fair comment, we can basically tell what it is by what he is saying now. He is saying this is a police matter uniquely. It's got nothing to do with us at the government level. And if that is, in fact, the management or governing approach that he took to this, it's going to look terrible because that just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Every level, the Ottawa police, the city of Ottawa, the federal government, Everybody was saying, we need help and coordination. The province has to pull some other levers to create an environment in which this protest becomes manageable so the police can do their jobs. So just for example, province declared a state of emergency on Friday the 11th of February. Border blockages at the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor. They warn, they say, if you don't leave here, this area, we might pull your heavy truck licenses because we have that ability at the provincial level. Enough trucks left the Ambassador Bridge that when the police ultimately had to move in to clear the area, it was a very small protest. There was no violent confrontation, no uh, serious injuries, no loss of life. The question will be, Mr. Ford, why did you not do the same thing in Ottawa? If the province had the authority to declare a no-go zone around Parliament for protest and threaten to pull the licenses of heavy trucks, 
a large number of people would have left that protest, which would have made it a manageable police matter. In other words, the, polit the political levers and the policing levers support one another in a time of crisis. And we know this worked because those are very similar to the powers that the federal government then mobilized at the federal level to clear out the protest where they froze accounts, they declared a no go zone, and people started to leave on their own accord. So the, the police moved in. It was manageable for them to deal with without loss of life um, and without use of excessive force. Well, it's also interesting you brought that up because um, his involvement in what occurred on the Ambassador Bridge basically was a federal issue because it was an international border that is a federal jurisdiction, even though there were very definite impacts in terms of the Ontario economy by this blockade going on. So he was quite willing to weigh in on a federal matter at that time. Well, yes. I mean, uh, the border itself is obviously federal jurisdiction. As you get into the territory surrounding it, the convoy uh, that blocked that border passed through uh, the jurisdiction of Windsor Police and OPP police on the 400 series highways that lead through that area. So similar to Ottawa, it's a multi-jurisdictional thing, but the province is always the first line of defense in the chain of institutions to support cities or zones that are in crisis and emergency. In fact, the federal government cannot act, the RCMP cannot act before Local, provincial authorities are mobilized. The OPP tries to help. And then if they can't do it, the Solicitor General of the province goes to the federal government and says, we need your help. That's when we start saying the Emergencies Act becomes a, a, a possibility. We saw a little bit of that with Mayor of Ottawa, uh, Jim Watson, trying to talk directly to Prime Minister Trudeau. And Trudeau saying, well, these things have stages. That's what he meant. It has to go to the province first, cannot go directly to the federal government. Well, there's another level of irony in all of this as well, because one of the issues that's been raised so far with the Emergencies Act, and one of the reasons why they want to hear from Premier Doug Ford, is that uh, the province wasn't showing up to the planning meetings that involved the federal government and the city of Ottawa. Well, this gets to what I was saying as to why Doug Ford would not want to show up. All of this is already in the documents and the testimony of other people. Uh, I think that the Premier does not want to be on live camera explaining to people directly with his words and images of himself why, why he was not at these meetings. Why he alone and his government alone felt that this was exclusively a policing matter when every other agency, including the chief of Ottawa police at the time, Peter slowly said, there is no police so solution to this set of very complicated problems. The police are a part of the solution, certainly, but they cannot resolve all of society's divisions about vaccination policy and the multiple, what OPP head of intelligence Tom Morris called the multiple grievances of protesters that showed up anger about the erosion of quality of life of the lower segments of the middle class, lack of uh, upper, upward mobility prospects, certain conspiracy theories about global powers and the World Economic Forum, and all of these things that get rolled together when people get angry. These are not social divisions that the police can resolve for us. 
although they have a role in maintaining order and perhaps facilitating dialogue through their police liaison teams attempt to mediate our way out of protest, ultimately they have to mediate with someone on the other side, and that someone is government. And that has nothing to do with operational independence. Do not be fooled. Well, you mentioned something else, and I'm wondering if that might be another one of the factors at play here uh, for Ford uh, not wanting to show up for this questioning. He does tend to be a bit of a live wire into loose cannon, and he doesn't actually uh, perform very well when there are a lot of questions being fired at him. Um, And in this case, certainly by people who are very well versed on the legalities around all of this, perhaps better versed than he might be. Well, there's certainly that element of it. I mean, it's not. We all know that Mr. Ford's strengths are at the sort of uh, populist level of communication. But to be fair, it's not as though Justin Trudeau excels uh, unscripted and facing tough questions for extended periods of time, either. But he has the same parliamentary privilege in theory that Doug Ford would be able to mobilize. But in the national public interest, we simply need our political leadership to explain to us what has happened, not because we want their blood and to see them pay for the errors that they made along the way, but we need reassurance and we need to understand what is going on around us if we're going to be able to effectively tackle these challenges of polarization and angry members of the population. We need to understand what's going on here. This is the very reason that one would ever aspire to the office of Premier or Prime Minister or ordinary MPP or MP would be to help the public interest meet these challenges moving forward, however folksy or in or, or uneloquent we may be in answering complicated legal questions. I don't think I would do much of a better job in front of millions of people answering difficult questions either, but I would do it in the public interest, if that was my responsibility. Well, you know, truth be told, and it stands to reason, this is the first time the Emergencies Act has ever been utilized. So it stands to reason that there were a lot of things that didn't go the way people really think they ought to have gone. There was a lot of scrambling. They don't call it a crisis if you have a lot of time for it. And I'm not sure, you know, who, if anybody, actually had dusted off the Emergencies Act before they were going to use it. Well, that's exactly right. And I think that the that point is not lost on the public that is watching or keeping up with this inquiry. There's always going to be people out there on the extreme of this argument. They'll either they'll cherry pick information and they'll hear what they want to hear. And they're going to conclude by either saying, there you go. The act was not necessary. And therefore, Justin Trudeau is a tyrant. And we are living under the control of the World Economic Forum. Or they'll say, there you go. These people protesting were all connected with anti-Islamist, far-right extremist organizations, and therefore Justin Trudeau is a genius, and Doug Ford and Pierre Poilievre are the devil. I mean, there's always going to be those people out there. But the vast bulk of people watching this are saying, my gosh, this really was an unprecedented emergency. It is clear there was a systems failure here from the police to municipal government to the police oversight bodies to the province to the intelligence agencies CSIS feeding information to the federal government to cabinet confusion at the level of the federal government let's fix it and prepare our institutions for the continued protest that by the time anybody who watches this inquiry uh by the time we get to the end it'll be very clear 
that it is only a matter of time until these protests come back to our doorstep, we've got to get our institutions ready to be prepared to deal with this. We cannot pretend that we don't have an ongoing problem here. And all of our political leaders, in a sense, they're not going to get a pass, but I think that the public will be adult in listening to them explain their mistakes, but more importantly, outline what they're going to do to fix this so that we're ready. Well, and this inquiry is not about finding fault. That's not why it's employed as part of the act. It's a it's a fact-finding mission. There are no consequences, really, for anybody, um, except perhaps in the court of public opinion. But this is really to, to take a look at the act. Was it appropriate? What can we do better going forward? Well, that's exactly right. And the big question is, was the federal government right or wrong in invoking the Emergencies Act? But if that was going to be the only thing that this commission reported, the final report would be half a page long. They're also going to look into what broke down all along the way. There will be recommendations for what to do to policing, policing governance, the interaction between cities and the provinces, on and on and on. They're then going to interrogate what specific powers the federal government mobilized for this set of issues and whether or not they were appropriate. And then they're going to say, guess what? The Emergencies Act is a huge law to mobilize for what it was ultimately used for in the sense, basically, everybody who's been up has said it enabled us to get tow trucks, it encouraged some people to go home, and it enabled us to create a protest no-go zone. The judge will very likely say, we need some new regular legislation that is not as extreme as the Emergencies Act, that will simply enable police and governments to do these quite ordinary things whenever something similar happens in the future so that we don't get all the way to invoking the Emergencies Act. So the the intelligent adult who is watching these proceedings at the end is not simply looking for the answer of, was Trudeau right or wrong? Yes, we're going to get that answer, but we're going to get a lot more valuable information about what it is about the weaknesses in our civil institutions that we can fix so that we can face a problem that we now all understand a little bit better. We're going to know a lot more about why there's so many angry people in our country. We're going to know a lot more about the size, which is relatively small, of bad actors that are using the multiple grievances, as it was called, of these protesters to pull them or attempt to recruit them into their more radical campaigns anti-authoritarian, local governance, very chaotic, that sort of far-right, far-far-right political agenda, and we'll be prepared to deal with it through our ordinary institutions, but not by declaring emergencies every six months. Well, it is interesting that uh, the Emergencies Act was drafted and created uh, to replace the War Measures Act, which was used by Pierre Trudeau during the FLQ crisis and the criticism that it was a very blunt instrument, and it was, but it was the only tool in the box. Correct. So we improved that War Measures Act. The War Measures Act was like a light switch. You either had it on or off. And once you turned it on, everybody's civil liberties were uh, set aside and the government could use martial law to solve whatever they could do, whatever it took to solve the problem. This Emergencies Act is better. It says the government must mobilize specific laws for a period of time, which are a little bit extraordinary to deal with the problem, but it has to be every step they take has to be justified within the charter. Now, that's a lot better. But next, we start saying, well, for 20 or 30 years, uh, legal scholar reformers have been talking about the need for adequate protest law in this country. 
which just draws clear distinctions between what is a legal and illegal protest. And we wouldn't be alone. The United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, they all have this type of legislation. We don't have it here. So if we had proper protest legislation that's set up within the framework of the Charter, well, next time we might not have to mobilize the Emergencies Act because the police would be much clearer on what it is they are and are not allowed to do in the early days of a protest to make sure that everything stays on track. And by the same token, those who are protesting would be much clearer on what is allowed and not allowed, and those who are reasonable and are not looking for a violent confrontation with the state would conduct their protest and make their point, uh, use their free speech, freedom of movement, and all of those wonderful things that we value without grinding a city to a halt such that the public could not go about its essential business for an extended period of time, which rendered the protest illegal and ultimately in the domain of the Emergencies Act. Well, Michael, obviously there's going to be more for us to discuss as the days and weeks unfold with regards to this. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Always. Thank you. Michael Kempa is an Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.